HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cabot Creamery, proud to be a dairy farm family-owned cooperative for more than 100 years. Learn more at cabotcheese.coop. That's cabotcheese.coop. This week on Meet and 3, it's all about screens. We're diving into the world of TV, computers, and even VR to figure out how food consumption is shifted by a digital lens. Every course talks about a different topic within the Asian American identity through a very personal lens. And the three courses that are paired with VR, in it you're seeing a brushstroke by brushstroke recreation of the dish that you're about to eat. Most of us in the world live in urban areas. And so how much is the city already accidentally providing its residents? And how much more could it provide if um, we just made it a priority? Tune in to Meet and 3. HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, welcome to Japanese. I'm Yoos Takikotema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen sakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is so mystery for many people, and I try to demystify this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Scott Haas, who is a writer and clinical psychologist based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And he visited Japan for the first time in 2003 and has been visiting the country three to four times a year ever since. And based on his intimate experience with Japanese culture over the years, Scott recently published a truly inspiring book, Why Be Happy? This book is about how to achieve happiness with the mindset of Japanese people. The key is you don't have to be Japanese to reach your own happiness. The book is extremely helpful to understand Japanese culture broadly and deeply. I think everyone should read this book before visiting Japan, and I'm sure it will enrich your time in Japan tremendously. Also, Scott has a unique relationship with food. He has cooked in professional kitchens in the past and even spent a year and a half to write a book about chef's mentality in the kitchen, and uh, which is called Back of the House, in 2000, uh, 2013. So today we'll discuss how he got interested in Japan, how he we can attain happiness in a Japanese way, unique experiences in restaurant kitchens, 
what he learned from them, and much, much more. But before we start, Japan News is available on the Heritage Radio Network website as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japan News. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now let's start a conversation with Scott Haas. Hello, Scott. Welcome to the show. Hi, Akiko. It's a pleasure to、uh, have this conversation with you. And thank you so much for inviting me、uh, to your show. <laughs> thank you so much for writing such a great book. I was I really enjoying it every single page. So,、uh, so where are you right now? Okay. So, like everybody else, you can't travel, like you can't visit Japan for a while, I guess. No, I mean, I had a, a trip scheduled in April, and I had another one scheduled in November, and I was really holding out hope for November. And as you As you know,、um, the borders are closed temporarily, which I understand and respect. So, what I've been doing is having Zoom meetings with friends and colleagues in Japan just about once a week.、Mm, right. Well, thanks to the technology, at least you can stay and keep up with them. That's right. It's a real challenge, but、um, all of us are being very patient with one another. Right. And the 13 hours of time difference, that's the most challenging part, I think. So,、uh, so, first of all, to get to know you, so where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up?、Uh, what a great question. What did I eat when I grew up?、Uh, so, I'm, I'm originally from Plainfield, New Jersey, which is 22 miles from New York City.、Uh, my father was born in Germany, but、uh, lived in Manhattan and Brooklyn when he came to the United States as a teenager. And my mom、um, was born and raised in East New York, Brooklyn. And so we would go often to、uh, Manhattan for、uh, Chinese food or for、uh, Italian American food in Little Italy. Growing up, because it was the、uh, 60s, a lot of the moms, including mine,、um, believed in convenience. So we had, we had <laughs> a lot of canned food, a lot of frozen food. It was very unusual to have anything fresh.、Uh, we hardly ate vegetables and fruits. We certainly did not eat by the season.、Um, to my mom's credit, we did not have a lot of processed food, but it was not, it was not fresh. And、uh, the other challenge for my poor mom was that my father, being from Germany, insisted on having food that had no garlic or onions in it. So, anyone listening in, or, or you or I, it's really hard to cook without onions. It's, it's not that hard to cook without garlic, but Without onions is a real challenge. So, the food growing up was very, very bland. It wasn't、um, great. And that's kind of what led to a very early interest in learning how to cook myself <laughs> and learning、um, and experiencing restaurants, loving restaurants, because you could have whatever you liked.、Uh, and, and again, my mother, it's not, it's not her fault uh, entirely. Uh, she, she, it was, she was a, a product of a, of, of a certain type of marriage and a certain type of era. So, I think had she. Had more confidence and, and lived it, say, in the 1980s or 90s, it would have been a different experience.、Mm, but as a result, you became such a great food person. So that was a good thing. That's right. There was a positive outcome. And I started cooking、uh, for myself at the age of 16. Wow. Amazing. So, but then the other side of you is that you are a psych- clinical psychologist. So, why did you become a clinical psychologist and what is your job? So, I became a clinical psychologist. I went to the University of Detroit and got my doctorate there.、Um, I really like listening to people. 
I really like observing people. Um, I'm not very good at most things, but what I think I'm probably pretty good at is um, observing and documenting my observations. And that really is something that um, is similar both in psychology and in writing. I, when I, I trained at um, a place called Massachusetts Mental Health Center, which is a Harvard University teaching hospital. That's how I ended up in Boston. And long ago, back in the day, I, I was doing therapy. What I do now is some therapy, but most of what I do is consultative work. So my work presently is 100% or 98% in the black community in Boston. So I work at the, I'm not black, but I work, I grew up in a black city. So that that's part of it. Plainfield, New Jersey is a black city. And so uh, I work for Children's Services of Roxbury. I work for the Department of Transitional Assistance. I work for Social Security and I work for the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And my job as a clinical psychologist is to conduct interviews for the purpose of diagnosis and treatment planning. And I see a lot of individuals safe in terms of the Department of Transitional Assistance and Social Security who are um, homeless or chronically mentally ill or who have recently been incarcerated for long periods in state prison. And uh, I spend an hour or so, maybe a little less, with an individual trying to get to know that person and see if I can provide services. And it's, it's, it's just spellbinding work. I'm, 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 I'm blessed to be included in that community. Wow. That's amazing. Well, it's kind of makes sense because I, when I was reading your book and it's, it's so loving, like you, I, I could tell you like observing people, analyzing people's mindset, but it's so loving, you know, like your subject is not just a subject. And we just say it, it happens to be true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was just talking to a friend of mine uh, in Japan on Friday, and I said to him that it's, it's not that I love everything about Japan, I, and I don't because nobody does. Japanese <laughs> will be more than happy to tell you very quickly the things they don't like about Japan. Very quickly, they'll tell you. But what I love about being there is I'm never bored. And I was just reading a quote, strangely enough, that, um, Tony Bourdain had been uh, said to have said, and that was that he's never bored in Tokyo. And each time he goes, he learns something new. And to be sure, that's my experience. So in that sense, I love being there because it's spellbinding. And it every time I go, <laughs> like a lot of people who go to Japan, you think, oh, well, I get it. This time I get it. And then you get off the plane and within 24 hours, you, you say to yourself, or I say to myself, Wow, everything I thought was true was wrong. I, I got it all wrong last time. So <laughs> reframe things. And it's a reframing as a result of deepening of experience, of listening in a different way. And my Japanese, spoken Japanese, is really very bad, really bad. Um, I can ask directions and order a meal. What that means, ironically, is I'm in a position of observation. So if I'm out with a group of friends and I'm the only Westerner there, I'll, fit, I'll pick up about 30% of the conversation based on the context. But more broadly, say I'm at Shinjuku train station waiting for the train or wh wherever, or even with friends, I'm listening, but I'm not understanding what people are saying. So I'm able to observe their postures and their tone of voice. And interestingly, as, as many people will tell you about Japan, in a lot of ways, it's a nonverbal culture, which goes back to this whole business of observation and silence, that people are really... There's a Japanese expression called, in, in English, it's it's called reading the air. And 
people are supposed to be able to communicate to one another, not telepathically, but you're supposed to really catch a vibe. So that experience of catching vibes is so magical when you're there. It's really magical. Mm, I think it's a, in Japan, it's a, such a, regarded as such a valued skill. And if you don't, you can't read the air. You're like, you're not the good person, kind of. And it's really important because you really have to understand somebody. You have to think in somebody's mind in a way. So, yeah. And it's one of the chapters in your book, by the way. So I, I like that your chapter too. Um, yeah. So, but by the way, how did you um, become interested in Japan in the first place? All right. I'm going to give you the really, really short version here. It's going to be really short. So I'm 13 years old. I'm living in New Jersey. It's Saturday night. There's not much to do. In fact, there's nothing to do for a 13-year-old at that time. There's no internet. There's nothing. So <laughs> PBS, the the uh, public radio channel 13, WNET, had a series of great movies Saturday night. The only non-Western director was Kurosawa, and they played Rashomon. And it just blew my mind. And in my little pea brain of a 13-year-old, what I loved about it was there was no true story. Everyone's point of view in Rashomon has validity, whether it's the robber, um, the dead wife, the um, woodcutter. Everyone's point of view somehow is part of the narrative. And for a 13-year-old who was just emerging into adolescence, I had always thought my parents were right about everything. <laughs> <laughs> I just see that they were not right about, and of course, as you're a teenager, you don't th you don't think they're right about anything at all. So this narrative of Rashomon was like, wow, there's not there's not one way to tell a story. So that got me really intrigued about what did this say about Japan. So I went to the local bookstore, and I knew nothing about Japanese literature, but I went through all the novels, and I, any name that showed up that was Japanese, I bought the book as long as it was as long as long as it was under 200 pages. So I ended up with. Some Prefer Nettles by Tanizaki. I ended up with Snow Country by Kawabata. I ended up with, um, I think, the, the, the Sailor Who Fell from Grace from the Sea by Mishima. So I read those three novels, and I thought, wow, this is this is really interesting stuff. So mm. I picked them outside. I did not follow Japan until my late 20s in graduate school, when my doctoral thesis was on the psychological effects of the nuclear threat. So I read a ridiculous number of books about uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And again, I put that aside for a long time. And then when I got to be older, um, and I started reading a lot about food and getting excited about food. And I discovered, uh, you know, how magical and how interesting Japanese cuisine can be beyond sushi and, and ramen and so on. Mm, wow. Wow. <laughs> and then you got, uh, you know, the first three books you read, they're really beautiful. The most famous classics. So. Right. And I ended up at this point, I don't. <laughs> this pandemic suits me really well on a personal level because I don't go out much except when I was working or going to NBA basketball games or going to hear jazz. So I read a lot. So I've got about 300 books upstairs in my library that are only by Japanese or about Japan. So I've read a lot, like including older books by Soseki and so on and so on. And, 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 and I just love the whole, I love the, the books about Japan by Japanese because they really create a perspective of observation. And they're less about opinion than what am I seeing? What am I hearing? Interesting. Yeah. Um, recently, I've been watching a lot of Ozu movie. 
you know, he's as famous as Kurosawa in a way. And all the movie is more about observation too, like daily ordinary things that has a lot in it. So that reminds me of how you observe Japanese society. So right, yeah. <laughs> um, good morning about the two brothers, um, mm. and they if they keep saying good morning to everybody in English, and it's so cute. It's it's not just cute; it's really smart and beautiful. And it's exactly what you just said. You he takes these small so-called small lives, and he really brings you into their lives as a family. It's it's fascinating. Mm, right. So now let's get into your new book. Um, I think there's so much in, related to what you think about, about Japan. So this, again, the title is uh, Why Be Happy, and uh, which came out in July 2020. And so what is the theme of the book and why did you write it? So in a very broad sense, the theme of the book is uh, acceptance. Uh, and acceptance of situations. And there's a difference between acceptance and resignation. So I, you know the, how would you say it correctly? The, the, the Japanese term for resignation, shinatai, something, something, something. But the book is not about resignation. It's about acceptance of mm. a situation. And it's similar to what Michelle Obama said. You have to accept a situation in order to begin to change it. Mm. Which is kind of a um, a riff, let's say, on how acceptance is regarded in Japan. So, in acceptance in Japan, I'm sorry to say, often is a a prod towards conformity. But if you mm. use it the right way, what you can do is accept the situation and not react to it right away, but come up with different ideas and strategies and tactics for for changing what it is you don't like about it. So. What I loved about writing the book was to try to introduce this concept that I learned in Japan on a personal level with friends and seeing how it could be uh, used in situations here, both at work and at home. Mm, right. So it's a, uh, well, the acceptance is okay. It's a very deep concept. And I think the, the word you're trying to find was akiramiru, uh, like giving up something. And the ukeiru is something much broader, deeper. It's the word that was used, I'm sorry to say, after Hiroshima when the people who survived that war, well, I call it a war crime, but after they survived the, the bombing, when doctors would go to them, the people who survived it would say, it can't be helped. Right, right. So the ukiyuriru is a very universal term, which we're going to discuss now because we don't live in Japan, but it's such a... Um, concept that you can apply to any situation as far as you are you live your life so let's talk about um the concept more deeply with some examples so you have there 16 chapters in your book and uh so each chapter has an interesting and engaging theme to explain the concept of ukeireru or acceptance so um maybe first of all what does silence teach us about ukeireru so one of the challenges I experience when I come back from Japan to the States, <laughs> I, I love both countries. Both countries are fascinating. But a challenge that I experience when I come back to the States from Japan is it, the United States in general is, is not a, a place that prizes silence in the same way that Japan does. 
So recently in February, I went to a dinner party back when we were having dinner parties to a friend's house. And these were highly educated people, art historians, very lovely, smart people. But what was, what was difficult for me was throughout the dinner, everybody was offering opinions about all sorts of things. And the opinions were interesting, but it was so different than an evening I'll spend with friends that I just returned from Japan with spending time there. You'd spend an evening and it was really quiet. And there's a lot more listening going on than offering opinion. And the value of that was um, I would get, I got, I've, these are people I've known between 10 to 20 years each. And I really get to know them as people without them having to tell me. I have to try to understand them through observing them. And what I relate it to is that anyone who has small children or has spent time around small children knows, certainly with, when my kids were little, I was not talking to them a lot. Um, under the age of three. I mean, I would sing to them. I would talk to them a little bit, read stories and so on. But a lot of the time we would spend together just holding one another. And in a very broad sense, that issue of silence is, I think, based on that. And it's one of the definitions of um, acceptance in Japan, which is to accept the person as if that person is a child who needs your help. And, and the value of silence is you really are absorbing the, you're absorbing the other person. I heard something like Yuku connected. Um, so, for example, one of the one of the interesting things that will happen when I'll see a friend that I haven't seen in about six months in Japan is we'll sit. This this freaked me out the first time it happened. We sat down next to one another, my friend Jiro, and he didn't say anything for fifteen minutes. <laughs> and I that's a I, long time. <laughs> I thought he was mad at me or something. <laughs> He's right. He owns a beautiful ryokan in Yamanaka, and he he brought out some beautiful old. Japanese whiskey from Hokkaido. And we sat there and we just looked outside. It was raining, I think it was. And after about, you know, 15 minutes or so, maybe less, he just turned to me and he said, I'm so happy that you you came to visit. It's I know it's a long way away. Mm. And I thought about it and I said, I'm so happy to be here with you as my friend. And it was right. like, wow, how cool is that? Mm. <laughs> not a lot of small talk. It was right. not, you know, and it wasn't like, how was your flight? What's going on? And it was like, it was just to absorb, to, to feel that level of comfort, of physical comfort with another human being. It was really heavy. It was very beautiful. Mm. Right. And in the American situation, it's lively and bright and cheerful. But sometimes, you know, it, it gets competitive, right? Whoever louder is the winner, kind of. Right. You know, that assumption. <laughs> and I think I'm not, I'm not judging either culture. I think both cultures have an enormous amount to learn from one another. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, a real enormous amount. So one of the challenges that I have with friends there is I have a friend called Yuko. And Yuko had this terrific job as a writer for the government. And she, but she didn't like it. She just didn't like it. She got tired of writing other people's speeches. And she was saying, oh, you know, one day I'd like to be an independent journalist. And of course, being an American, I said, go for it. You know, Yuko, that'd be great. You'd be really good at it. You know, I love your writing and so on and so on. She said, yeah, but what if I don't do a good job? What if I fail? I said, well, then you can go back and get a job working for the government. I'm sure you can find something. So, you know, try to push people to think more independently. So I think both, I think people here benefit in the States from thinking more about others. And maybe perhaps people in Japan might benefit more from uh, thinking a little bit more independently. Not, I don't mean to be presumptuous, but I mean, that those are some things that each culture seems to excel at. Right. Yeah, I can agree more. That's why I'm here in New York for years. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I didn't mean to be presumptuous, but yes. Right. Uh, and also you said, um, you know, in your book, it helps to be the, the silence is more effective 
than words, and it helps to build trust, express respect, learn through listening and observing. And if you're busy talking and offering your opinions, you can't take things in. So, yeah, I, yeah. One of the things, uh, friends of mine who have never been to Japan, who I, I set up, where should I go? Where should I stay? Where should I eat? So I give people recommendations and I send emails to friends uh, in Japan getting, say, my friend Nancy is coming there. Please take care of her and so on. So I say, they say, what advice do you have when we're with Japanese? And I say to them things like, the first time you meet somebody, don't ask a million questions. Don't tell them how happy you are to be in their lacquerware studio. Go to their lacquerware studio and turn to the person and say, you know, Shinji, I've heard a lot about you. This is a beautiful studio. You seem like quite an artisan. Uh, how did you get started? And, and listen for the next 10 minutes or so. Think and listen. Don't don't keep interrupting the other person with 47 questions. Um, I had an experience like that also and prepare. I had an experience like that with a green tea farm in Shizuku Prefecture a bunch of years ago. And I had an interpreter and he sat down, we sat down facing one another and he said something. And I said to the interpreter, what is it he said? He looked kind of mean, he looked kind of gruff. And she said, he wants to know what you're doing here wasting his time. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, Oh, well, and, I, and I, I said, well, I really appreciate your time. And then I told him like in four sentences, I had studied green tea. I'd really studied in preparation. because I had, I had a feeling something like this might happen. And I demonstrated to him that I knew certain crop rotations and certain types of uh, varietals of green tea. And then he kind of like his mood lightened. You could see it. He smiled and he was he showed he was pleased that I showed enough respect for what he was doing to have studied before I got there. So that's something I tell people that the value of silence and the value of listening, it's predicated upon you actually knowing a little bit about, you don't have to be a a scholar, but, and I'm not, but you could just, just spend a little time learning about who you're with while you're there. Right. So it's out of respect to get a person, right? So, well, let's um, move on to the next topic because this this is very interesting. So we... So in one of the chapters, it's titled, What Would Dogen Do? Because you mentioned the important principle of Japanese cuisine here. So first of all, who is Dogen? So Dogen was a 13th century um, Zen Buddhist monk. He wrote in something like 1229. And he's credited with coming up with rules about Japanese cuisine that even though there's many Japanese who've never heard of him, and even though most Japanese homes do not follow those rules, they kind of show up in a lot of surprising ways, even in Japanese school lunches in terms of colors. And in a simplistic way, the whole issue of um, of balance in Japanese food, I like to think there's some relationship between that appreciation for balance and Dogen. Uh, I think there's some connection there. Um mm. Right. I think uh, the, he is one of the, the first um, monks who dis- realized how important it is to have good food. And it used to be that the lower level monks uh, prepared all the foods for everybody else. And uh, Dogen took initiative by following his sensei, like his, uh, the superior monk, and he developed um, certain rules of food, right? So, um, and you say in your chapter, 
Dogen developed the principle of gomi gosoku goho. So what is it and why is it important? So I was I was taught about this by a chef in uh, Kyoto at a little restaurant, not a little restaurant, but a restaurant called Mizuki. And the way he explained it to me was that there are, this is very simplistic because this is, but I'm going to, doesn't matter. There are five flavors, sweet, bitter, salty, sour, and spicy. There are five colors, red, green, yellow, white, and black. And there's five ways of cooking, uh, simmering food, steaming food, frying food, grilling food, or eating food raw. So those five principles in different um, areas of food um, can be applied, let's say, or thought about in in Japanese um, preparation of food. And as I say, um, even though you don't see most Japanese homes following those rules, um, there's some cultural framework that exists, uh, certainly in the schools, the colors and so on. And certainly when you, many Japanese um, homes, as you know, don't have ovens. So there's a lot of steaming going on. It's generally speaking, I like to think a, a kind of a healthier way of cooking. Mm, right. And uh, as far as you follow this gomi goshoku goho, uh, five days, five color, five methods, then you can stay healthy because you preserve the best nutrition of the ingredients and then you really um, absorb all the nutrients because the colorful food provides different nutrients and you get satisfied because they have variety of taste. So, right. And, uh, yep. It also relates to observation. Because let's be honest, everything fried tastes good. If I, <laughs> every, so, but that's not healthy. And it's also not really, it's, it's not, you're not, you're not, um, you're not being patient. So if you are in a situation where you um, wait for the flavors to emerge and you taste what's in your mouth, that's something that will happen more readily, let's say with food that's steamed, you have to wait for that to happen. Whereas if you eat something that's fried, the taste is immediate. It's fast. You fry, if you fry something that's fatty and salty, you're going to get a complete food rush. But if you're steaming a sweet potato, it's going to take a little while for you to enjoy what it is that you're eating. But during that period of time, while you're waiting for the flavors to kick in, it could be, at least for me, you're thinking about how that sweet potato was grown where it was grown, what time of year it was grown. Whereas if you're frying chicken, which is delicious, don't get me wrong, I love fried chicken. <laughs> I don't want to have it every night. I I, I could have a, something steamed every night, to be sure, because it connects me more to nature. Mm, right. And also different methods really brings out the best flavor depending on what kind of ingredient. So, yeah, I think, uh, so the, by the way, um, you know, this, Gomi Gosokoho is applied to shojin, which is a, you know, Japanese temple food. Basically, it's vegetarian food. So it's still um, in underlining a lot of Japanese cooking. So, yeah. And, yeah, this is interesting that this dogen thing, you because <laughs> you're such a food person, you picked up this important principle in your book about happiness. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's really interesting. And it, and even though I, I cook Japanese food maybe once a week because I live near an H Mart and they have beautiful products from Japan, um, I don't follow his principles religiously or spiritually, but I certainly think about them. Um, no exaggeration. I really think about what are the balance of flavors I want on, on the plate. And typically, similar to what you will get in a Japanese home or a restaurant, on my plate, there's 
often three vegetables, small portions and a small piece of protein. It's my food is not that I cook at home is not protein driven. And that's something I learned in Japan. So when you go out with friends to a yakitori place, even you'll get a lot of chicken, but you'll certainly get a lot of grilled vegetables as well. Right. Yeah, I think it's natural. I think Japanese, maybe Japanese DNA, you know, the Ichiju Sansai format of meal. So one rice, uh, no, one soup, uh, one main dish, usually fish, and two side dishes, which is usually vegetables, and one boiled rice, and then vegetable pickles. So, yeah, it's just basically uh, incorporated into Japanese cuisine naturally. Um, I noticed something. I mean, I noticed something very visceral when I was in Japan, which was after I finished a meal, unlike, say, when I'm eating a meal in Switzerland, which is also delicious, when I finished a meal in Japan, I didn't. I felt good. I didn't feel like I ate too much. I didn't feel heavy. I just felt good. And mm. so that feeling of goodness, I would say to myself, well, where does that come from? And I realized, oh, because you ate a lot of vegetables and they weren't all fried. Right. And you can sleep well after a big dinner too, after Japanese food. That's a big benefit, in my opinion. Right. Um, so let's move on to the this another interesting um, the chapter that's about nature. So what is the relationship between the Japanese mindset and nature? Well, I, I think about that all the time, especially now during the pandemic, especially now because I've been very upset like everybody else um, because of what's happening. And I'm trying to say to myself, okay, wh what, what can I do? What can I do to fit in with this situation? And that really relates to all that time I have spent in Japan, which is the goal, as far as I can tell, is how do I fit in with nature's demands? I'm, I'm not separate from nature. I try to, as a human being, as human beings, too often we try to impose on nature. But if you really can figure out what it is that nature demands of us and what how we fit in with nature, um, we feel a sense of well-being. And that's accepting our position in nature and trying to accept what it is that the demands are that are being placed on us. And I mentioned the pandemic because um, like many people, uh, <laughs> a lot of I would say most of the offices I work in are closed. They may not reopen. And everything now is through Zoom or through telemedicine and so on. So I spend a lot more time uh, out, outdoors in my neighborhood. Um, the birds have taken over. The animals are out and about. So where do I fit in with that? What, why? Not that we deserve this pandemic and not that there's um, a reason behind it. I don't think everything, I do not think everything happens for a reason. But if this is what's happening, how do I fit in with this change in nature? Um, and I see that, I saw that in Japan when I, with friends, say, by the ocean or in a forest, people show such respect for where they are in nature there. And again, I recognize the contradiction because the Japanese cities are like complete mayhem in the best way. But when people are in nature, say, in Japan, they're very quiet and they're absorbing what's around them. And I, I get the sense that they want to understand how they can be part of nature as opposed to imposing upon it. Mm, right. So so basically, we just admit that we're just one part of huge nature. Right. Relation, in relationship to the things that Japan celebrates, 
we're we're not here for very long, you know. And Japan celebrates most famously the 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 cherry blossom season. Those blossoms don't last a whole long time, just maybe a few days. Or fireflies, also a very short season. Um, and I think that celebration is a recognition that part of the reason why those things are so special, ironically, lies in the fact that they're not here very long. And in fact, we're not here very long. So life is precious and we need to make the most of that preciousness. We should not, we should accept our position. We should not try to end our position. Right. Not a lot of thinking. Mm. Right. I think one of the reasons Japanese people have natural respect to nature, I mean, of course, it's based on Shintoism, which is, um, you know, there's an assumption that there are 8 million gods in their lives. So this, um, you know, like pencil or grain of rice, each one has God in it. And that's like, it is a natural assumption, although people are not going to Shinto shrines every day or anything. It's very light background in the head. But um, there is definitely um, the acceptance that we are not anything that, that can control the nature, the power of nature so strongly. So that's, that's right. maybe why. I was very lucky a few years ago, a friend of mine who lives on Awaji Island took me to a, a purification ceremony at the Shinto um, shrine. And uh, I participated in it and he participated in it. And uh, it was not voyeuristic. It was not a tourist experience. And I am not a religious person. I am not a spiritual person, uh, but it was very um, moving. It was very moving to slow things down to that extent. And I wouldn't say I felt purified necessarily. I didn't feel cleansed necessarily, but I loved the fact that, um, again, it was very quiet and I felt more a part of nature through that experience than I have in many, many, many other experiences. Mm, right. I mean, just every day we, I think in the, in the modern society, every, almost everybody, including myself, I feel like my, my head is inward, right? Just try to survive or get through some problems on a daily basis. But we realize we go to shrine with that kind of experience. We just zoom out of that mindset. So, yeah, that's a great that's exactly thing. Right. And yeah, right. that's exactly and the temporality of it, that's the other thing. Nothing lasts forever. No pain lasts forever. Nothing. Even, even when you're dying, that's not, that, that process of dying, that final process is not going to last forever. So part of recognizing and accepting your position in nature is understanding and accepting the fact right. things being temporary. It's powerful. <laughs> and it really right. tamps down on a lot of if I'm in a stressful situation on a, on a um, sort of micro level, this happened recently, about a year ago. I'm at a Delta counter and the flight was delayed by four hours. And all these Westerners were flipping out. They were so mad. They were running to the desk and demanding this and demanding that. And they're going to miss their connecting flight and they're going to miss their Broadway play. It was a Boston to New York flight and on and on. And I'm not saying I'm a chill person, but I recognize that there was nothing we could do about it and accepting that fact. And I also was thinking, well, here we are. And what all the stress I'm experiencing right now, 
to be sure it's not going to last. Tomorrow, I'll find something else that's really going to annoy me. So just, just let it go. Just let it mm. go. It's a situation for what it is. There's no point. There's no point in getting mad about a situation if you can avoid it. Mm. So you know, there was you have if you have the mindset of acceptance, okay, then you gain uh, some room to calm down, and you regain control over what you can control instead of. You try to control something you cannot control, so you get a kind of yeah, more like and, a. And and again, it doesn't. You don't always see it in Japan. Again, if you, you're rush hour at Shinjuku Station, forget it. Nobody's practicing. <laughs> it. It's not happening. But yeah. you're with friends or acquaintances when it works to the extent that Japanese is functional. To the extent that. To the extent that Japan is functional, to the extent that it has such a, such an extraordinary public infrastructure and healthcare system, despite all the things that we know need to be changed and need to be improved upon, I think it's based on an acceptance of the of a of a public sense of well being. Mm, right. So, by the way, so the another chapter that's interesting about apology in your book. So, in America,、uh, apologizing is not a smart choice when you are in trouble. And, but according to your book, in Japan, it's an effective tool to、uh, reach a solution easily. So, could you elaborate on that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I use it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and at the at the at the at the primary level, at a primary level, I feel better apologizing. It doesn't even matter whether it works at that first level of just like I just feel a sense of relief, just a, a real sense of wow. I apologize to this other person. I gave this other person a sense of authority. I did not invalidate them. I did not devalue them. And if you're lucky, the apology actually works. So, for example, if I keep somebody waiting、um, at this office I work at in Roxbury,、um, and the person I go out to the waiting room to get them, and you can see from the face of the individual that they're really pretty angry about having been kept waiting. So I find that if I turn to the person and, and, and instead of just saying my office is back here, let's get started. If I turn to the person, I go, "I'm so sorry. I really apologize. The person before you came in late, or I was running late, or I didn't. I made a mistake. I'm very sorry." It's like wow. It's like it's like you just gave the person something to eat and they were hungry. They just look at you like, "Oh, so you understand that I'm angry, and you apologized." And the person usually will say to me, "Oh, that's okay. That's fine." You know, you don't have to apologize. And sometimes in those situations, lately I've been saying to people, "I know, I know, I don't have to apologize, but I feel better doing it."、Mm. And it's a huge difference. And I recognize that there's some gender issues here. Like a lot of my friends who were women said, "Yeah, well, women have been apologizing for decades, Scott. So don't tell us to apologize. So once <laughs> I apologize, you guys can apologize all you like, but we're not. We're, we're done apologizing." So I said, "All right, all right, fair enough, fair enough. I get it. I'm not." I'm not saying apologize for something you haven't done, or apologize affects、mm. you too, or whatever, whatever. But if you're in a situation where you think that apology can defuse、um, the crisis,、um, there's something to be said for it. And again, I, I I recognize I've been educated about the issues of gender and so on, sexuality. So I'm not saying uniformly it should be done, but I'm saying for my own self or for for guys, not a bad idea. Right, yeah. So the the relationship between apologizing and okayed, so you accept your something you have to apologize about, and you feel like you're not suffering from it. You let it go. 
So your burden is um It was the first word I learned in Japanese. My first trip there 17 years ago, I I kept hearing it. I would turn to friends. Finally, I said, what does sumimasen mean? I keep hearing it. Why do people keep saying sumimasen? They said, well, it means different things in different contexts. One of the contexts is, I apologize. I'm sorry. I said, why do people keep saying it? And they would say to me, because it just makes things a little quieter. It does. Mm. It it tension. Um, I apologize for coming to your table and bringing you food because I see that you and the person you're with are having a conversation. I apologize for interrupting you. Right. So, so um, well, Japan is a little different country from America or other, you know, parts of the world. So, how universal is the concept of ukeireru? I think that people, by our nature, by our since we're all human, we're part, all part of the human race. We're all part of the, we, we, we are all the same race. We're the human race. And I'm not, I'm not being like, you know, peace and love and granola here. I'm just simply stating a fact, which is we all belong to the same species. Therefore, so acceptance exists in all these different cultures to varying degrees. So for example, um, one of the things I've learned in working with the black church in, in, in Boston is there's a great deal of affiliation, a great deal of acceptance. And one of the, one of the gospel songs by James Cleveland years ago was God is not through with me yet, which is a way of saying to the other person, just accept me for who I am today. I'm still evolving. I'm still changing. So there are many degrees of acceptance in all different cultures. I think though the Japanese have created as a foundation for the culture. It's not a culture that's self-driven. Um, and whatever is happening in terms of the reporting of statistics on coronavirus there, and I recognize fully the controversies behind the reporting, even with the controversies, it appears that the rates are lower because people are more cooperative. They are more accepting of the fact that what I do matters in terms of the, the other people in the room, the other people on the train, the other people around me. So it's not as it's not as individual. It's not just accepting what's good for me. It's what's good for the group. Mm. Because at the end of the day, if if what I'm doing only benefits me, if it only benefits me or only benefits my family, that's not really, that's kind of selfish. And you just, and I recognize those that selfishness exists in Japan. I'm not idealizing it, but I think it exists less so as a cultural value. Right. Mm, interesting. That reminded me of, uh, I heard that, uh, you know, the Japanese concentration camp, um, people just accepted this is a camp. You can't improve this. So let's just organize things. And they created a kind of nice system to live. And even, you know, the 311, uh, there is a, you know, Tohoku earthquake. People just living in, a, you know, kind of refugee camp situation. That the same thing happened. So that ukeiru mindset, well, what are you going to do? You can't do anything. So let's try to do something you can <laughs> out no, of this. Uh, and on a, on again, on a micro, micro, micro level, certainly nothing compared to incarceration or to an earthquake. Uh, uh, Ten years ago, our Delta plane landed at uh, Narita. It had refueled at Nagoya. They knew we could have gotten off. They didn't let us off, knowing fully well that um, Narita was closed. Um, we flew 15 hours over. We were stuck at um, Narita for uh, 21 hours uh, on the floor. No food. Um, no rooms were available, no, no transportation. And 
if this was, I felt, if this was a Western airport, people again would have gotten very, very angry. Some, some, we have to do something. All around me, people in Japan in, at the airport were very quiet, um, just sort of hugging one another, or not hugging one another. It is Japan, but they were sitting very closely to one another, uh, quiet, just quiet, looking at looking at their phones. There was a big television. It was the around the Olympics. They were watching some Olympic trials in Korea. Um, it was it was very instructive to me that no point in getting really that upset because it's just going to make everyone around you upset. Mm, so that's the essence of ukiyo-deru, the acceptance. Right. Okay, so uh, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll discuss uh, what Scott learned from his experience and working in a professional kitchen. So please stay with us. Cabot Creamery has been making the world's finest dairy products for over 100 years. Cabot's award-winning cheddars and other dairy products stand apart because of their farmers' tireless dedication to quality and freshness, caring for their animals, and to healthy land and a sustainable future. More than a century after they started this journey, Cabot's farmer owners still know what matters most. Family and community, the simple truth that we're stronger together than we are apart. That delicious products are the reward of a job well done. That when you love what you do this much, that the best is always still to come. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese. I'm your host, Yaki Kotema, and my guest today is Scott Harz, who is a writer and a clinical psychologist based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He recently published a fascinating and inspiring book, Why Be Happy?, based on his intimate relationship with Japan and Japanese culture. So uh, we have a lot to talk about. We're kind of running out of time. So um, this is a question. So you have worked for several years in three restaurants in Boston and New York. And you also wrote a book, uh, the book uh, Back of the House, which is uh, a book about chef's mindset. So why did you work in professional kitchens? And uh, what did you learn from the experience? So when our first child was born, I didn't want to be one of those parents who complained that I couldn't eat in restaurants any longer. So I had always liked cooking. Uh, so I bought uh, Marcella Hazan's uh, cookbooks. They're her first three cookbooks. And I cooked everything I could in them a, a lot of times until I felt comfortable cooking her food without looking at the recipes. And then fortunately, very luckily, my wife, who was a family practice doctor, one of her patients uh, is or was a, uh, a French chef here in Boston. And he was kind enough to let me work in his restaurant for three months because I wanted to see what is it like to cook professionally. So I worked in his restaurant. And then I ended up working for two years at a pretty famous restaurant in New York on 6th and Houston called Da Silvano. And I wrote his cookbook with him. Um, and Silvano Marchetto was a it's the kind of restaurant where like there's uh, Rihanna, there's Madonna, there's Jack Nicholson, but in beautiful t-shirt, blue jeans, exquisite Tuscan food. Um, I worked there for two years and I worked at a restaurant in Boston, a sort of a, an American restaurant that styled itself as French, more of a just beautiful kind of California style food, I guess, simple food in the best way. And I worked there for about 18 months and that's where the, the, um, the book came from. So I wanted to learn what do chefs do that's different than home cooking. And what I learned was the first restaurant, the French one in Boston, I learned respect for all the ingredients that, you know, uh, whether it was white beans or duck confit, that 
everything needed to be treated the same way. And at Silvano's place, uh, which is it, it, they closed a few years ago, but an astonishing restaurant, he taught me how to cook pasta, which is no small thing. And also he would buy beautiful ingredients. And one of the things he basically said to me was, buy the best ingredients you can afford. Don't worry so much about the recipes. Just you start with the ingredients, spend more on ingredients, spend as much as you possibly can within your budget. So if there's a recipe, say, in the New York Times about how to roast chicken, um, be sure that you buy a really, no matter, even if you follow the recipe, if you're not getting a good bird to start with, it's, it's just not going to taste great. And there's a third restaurant in Boston. It was very, um, what's the word, efficient. He taught me how to use a pressure cooker. So I, I use a pressure cooker, oh, I don't know, three, four nights a week for making soups and broths and all sorts of things. Mm, right. So I'm going to try not to forcing to connect to gated mindset, but the kitchen is kind of the environment too, right? They have to accept what's available and what's necessary to get things done. So sounds like uh, your kitchen mindset can be connected to this gated mindset. As we know, during the when the pandemic started, uh, it was very difficult to for many people to get into stores. People lost jobs; they couldn't afford to buy a lot of things, um, and the availability of ingredients was a real challenge. Um, as I say, I'm a writer. I've been having food shipped to my house for 20, 25 years uh, from all sorts of places, like Baldor's and Daritanian, um, uh, Lobel's beef. So I've had food shipped to me. I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to afford food of that quality. Um, but it's basically accepting what's in your house and cooking with it. One of the things I learned from professional chefs, Silvano came to stay with me when I rented a house in Italy was he said, he just went in the kitchen and saw what was there. He said, I know what to do with this stuff. And he cooked a beautiful meal, you know, so accepting what's in your kitchen within your budget, learn what, learn to do, learn to cook with what you have. Mm, right. Okay. So, um, you have a lot going on, sounds like in your life. So what are your plans? So I am finishing revising a book about girls and women in Japan. It's not a, um, it's a non, it's not, it is not nonfiction. Three years ago, a little boy got lost in Hokkaido. His parents had dropped him off in a parking lot and he, they were supposed to come back in 10 minutes. They were punishing him for throwing stones and they came back 10 minutes later. He was gone and it took five days for the um, military and police to find him. He was lucky. He's blessed to find an abandoned army barracks. So I changed the plot and I thought, well, what if it was like for a little girl to disappear in Japan? And I think a lot about my friends and who are women in, in Japan and the challenges they face as women in a society, which is, you know, let, it's fair to say kind of dominated by older guys. So what, is it, what does that mean? Why would, a, why would an 11 year old girl leave her family? So I'm working on this book, I'm revising it. And uh, that's a lot of what I'm doing. I'm also working on a book about... Um, uh, the farms of Switzerland. I live in Switzerland part of the year, and I'm very curious to know, speaking of trying to accept nature and fit into nature, um, I think the farming community, whatever their ideologies are, have a feeling or an appreciation for what nature presents to us that those of us who live, live in cities can benefit from learning. Mm, wow. That's exciting. There's so many things. So uh, keep me posted. And uh, so where, yeah, so where can we, uh, our listeners can find you, uh, your updates online? spend way too much time on Twitter like everybody. Uh, I'm on Instagram. Uh, I'm on, I'm one of the last people on Facebook. Uh, so I'm, I'm on social media. One of the things about being a writer at home is that uh, there's plenty of things that you can find to distract you when you should, or you, you feel as if you should be writing. So I'm on social media. I have a, uh, 
you know, you punch in my name, you'll find me. Okay, so the name is Scott Haas, H-A-A-S. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you were too much fun. You were you were great. Wonderful questions. <laughs> and your kindness and appreciation is just spectacular. Um, oh. we, should, we should do this every Monday. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your words. Um, so listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or akikokatayama.com. Japanese is a weekly program and always available at the heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Engineer is Jess Krenchich, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.